This podcast is from the Rand Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. For more Rand analysis, reports, and commentary on issues at the forefront of today's policy debate, visit www.rand.org. Thank you all for coming. My name is Jamie Fugelson. I'm the Director of Congressional Relations for the Rand Corporation. It's my pleasure to welcome you today to our first briefing of the 116th Congress, titled, What are the Potential Impacts of Single-Payer Healthcare? And then finally, uh, for some of the new faces, I just want to tell you briefly about the RAND Corporation so you know uh, where our research perspective comes from. We're a nonprofit, nonpartisan research organization with the mission of helping to improve policy and decision-making through objective research and analysis. We focus on issues sort of across the spectrum, from national security to healthcare, energy, environment, and, and much more. To help benefit the public good, we work to disseminate our findings as widely as possible. We now have more than 24,000 RAND publications available for free to all of you on our website. Um, and for those of you who are here on the Hill, if you're ever looking at something and you prefer a hard copy, we can certainly have one sent up to your office. Um, you should also know that RAND is a resource for you and your bosses here on Capitol Hill. In addition to attending events like this, uh, you can always request meetings to learn more about the research that we're doing uh, on topics that you're actively working on. So please don't hesitate to reach out. You can always contact me, um, or there's a variety of my team around at the check-in table and in the back here. And then finally, I just want to briefly introduce our topic today. So uh, single-payer has been in the news a lot lately, and I think we've been seeing a lot more attention paid to different uh, single-payer proposals. Uh, increasingly, we're seeing people on the Hill start thinking about how a single-payer program might be designed to help improve coverage uh, and control costs. So today, I'm very delighted that we're joined by Jody Liu. Jody is an associate policy researcher at RAND. Her research focuses on healthcare financing and payment. She's done work recently uh, assessing healthcare reform proposals, alternative payment models, and policy options for single-payer healthcare. So with that, I'll turn it over to Jody to get us started. Thanks, Jamie, and thanks everybody for coming today. So the goal for uh, today's presentation, um, as Jamie mentioned, is to talk about what single-payer is and um, talk about key characteristics of different single-payer plans, and in particular, hi highlighting some of the variation that exists between different types of plans. Also be talking a bit about common misconceptions about single payer and also for um, the potential impact of these uh, different characteristics on things like cost and spending. So first, what is single payer? Um, single payer is a coverage program that would provide universal or near universal coverage, and it's usually run by the government or some other entity. So the single payer would be responsible for uh, making uh, many decisions about who would be covered, uh, what would be covered, how to pay for the plan, and also um, how to pay for services. So this is these are the functions that typically private health insurance and public programs like Medicare and Medicaid are doing today. But a single payer would bring all those functions um, under one roof for a broad population. So there are many different flavors of single payer. Um, so shown on this slide are five examples from Canada, from England, and then three examples of U.S.-based proposals, a uh, comprehensive type of proposal, such as Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All proposal, a state uh, proposal with New York as an example, and then last, a universal catastrophic plan. And this last one may be less familiar um, to people, but this is a plan that we've included here because it would provide universal coverage, so it would cover everybody, um, but the type of coverage would be only for catastrophic levels of um, financial loss. So this is a plan that's been around for some time. It was originally proposed by um, Martin Feldman, and um, the example shown here is um, a more recent example from Hagopian and Goldman. Mm -hmm. 
And so in the next set of slides, I'm going to go through and talk about some different characteristics and how it varies across these different examples. So first for the payer, so who's administering the plan? Um, it can be provinces and territories like in Canada. It can be the uh, national, a national body or the federal government. It could be a state or it could even be a private um, insurer that's contracted by the government. In terms of who's, who's covered, it's usually almost everybody, but there are typically some exclusions that might apply. Um, there might need to be some sort of um, legal status that people have in order to qualify for the program. And then some, some programs exclude some existing public programs. So for example, a Medicare or Medicaid might be left out of the program. In terms of what is covered, um, typically there are some statements about all medically necessary services being covered. Um, it's typically uh, a pretty broad set of services, but there, again, there may be some exclusions um, for things like prescription drugs or for long-term care services. So it kind of depends on the details of the plan on what is actually covered. For services that are covered, um, similarly, the cost sharing, so what people pay for out-of-pocket in terms of deductibles and copayments, that can also vary. A lot of the Medicare for All plans now are um, trying to uh, have free, uh, free care, so there's no copayments co or deductibles, but um, that can vary depending on the plan details. There um, could be cost sharing for certain sets of services, like for prescription drugs in England, or um, under a catastrophic type of plan, there could be um, an income-related deductible so that people with lower income would be paying less, people with higher income would be paying more. So there um, is variation that's possible, even with cost sharing under a single-payer plan. So depending on who's covered and what's covered, there's a possibility that other insurance programs still exist alongside a single-payer plan. So in Canada and England, there are private insurance plans for certain types of services. So if there's any gaps in coverage, like if prescription drugs aren't covered, there may be uh, some role for private insurance to still provide coverage. And then in some of the U.S.-based plans, some of the public programs would still be retained. For example, veterans' benefits uh, might be still maintained alongside a single-payer plan. Another important factor is providers. So what, who are the providers that are participating in the plan and how are they paid? Um, typically, there's a mix of different types of um, public and private providers and a mix of services um, that are, are paid in different ways. Um, and this can vary across the plans, and I'll talk a little bit more about um, what that variation might look like. Um, usually, the plans... Um, will uh, kind of outline broad statements about this, but it's really in the implementation of a single-player plan that would determine um, what payment arrangements are actually being used. And then um, the payments also relate to cost controls. So what would the cost actually look like under a single-payer? What mechanism do the single-payer have to control costs? And that um, can be related to just the single payer having more purchasing power, more negotiating power to um, regulate or set prices. Um, the single payer often will be setting a global budget for either the entire system or for components of the system, which is a way to um, control the budget. And then um, there's also the different payment methods used to pay for services to providers. So none of these are kind of guaranteed under a single-payer plan. It depends on how the single-payer decides to implement these different strategies. And so it's possible to cover everybody but not have any specific cost controls um, as well. And then last, how do we pay for this? Um, so for the financing, it's typically done through a variety of taxes. It could be through general tax revenue, or it could be through dedicated taxes that are specifically for a single-payer plan. And um, usually in the, in the U.S.-based proposals, there's also a redirection of existing funding for current programs that would go to the single-payer plan. And so again, this, the way that this tax structure is designed would have impacts on uh, how much people pay and what the total costs um, would look like.
So this is kind of the quick overview of these different characteristics. And um, the point really is that there's variation across these plans, and there's a lot of design choices, and there's a lot of implementation decisions that need to be made that would ultimately affect the um, impact of the plan. So I'll go through these in a little bit more um, detail in the next slides. But first, um, this slide here is showing what healthcare payments look like now under our current healthcare uh, system. So on the left here is households. Um, there are a variety of different, many different arrows here showing different payment streams to get from households to providers who are ultimately providing those services back to people. And so there's um, a lot of different streams here, but the main point is that um, we have a fragmented healthcare system. If we go to a single-payer system, it reduces some of this fragmentation. So if um, there is a single-payer uh, for the majority of healthcare services, private insurance would no longer be playing the major role in health insurance. So if we were to get rid of these uh, private insurers for the majority of services and get rid of the um, premiums and um, claims for those private services, um, we would have a little bit, a little bit less um, complication in, in the system. So this example is if we went to a single payer state system. So instead of those private premiums, um, people would be paying um, taxes to the state government, who would then be um, paying for uh, healthcare services uh, to to providers. If we went to a national system, that would get streamlined a little bit more, where um, the taxes would then be going to the federal government, and um, the federal government would be um, paying for. Um, uh, services to to providers. And so there's still a lot of arrows up here representing different existing taxes that may be going to healthcare programs. But um, the overall point is that the payer would be changing and we'd be shifting the financing. So we'd be shifting existing payments into a different um, stream through taxes. So in terms of how much reduction and fragmentation, it's related to um, what the plans are covering and who they're covering. So for the plans that exclude some types of populations or services, um, there would likely still be some existing programs um, for their services. So for example, for undocumented immigrants, if they're not covered by the plan, likely some uncompensated care programs might still exist for that population. If Veterans Health and Indian Health Services are continued, that might still exist in parallel with the single-payer system. And then the third example here for, for states, um, most uh, states, if they're trying to bring Medicare and Medicare, Medicaid beneficiaries under the single-payer program, they would be required to get federal waivers to do so. And so it's possible if those waivers aren't approved that the Medicare and Medicaid programs would um, need to still be operating alongside the single-payer system, and we need to figure out how those systems um, interact. So the single-payer would also be determining what's actually covered by the plan. And this can be done in different different uh, ways, but a single payer would need to come up with a process to figure out what um, services are covered. Um, in the UK, this is done through um, NICE that determines clinical and cost effectiveness, what services are covered by the National Health Service. In Oregon, there's a similar type of commission that does this um, with uh, clinical and cost effectiveness for the state uh, Medicaid program in Oregon, and they determine what program uh, what services are included in the Medicaid program. Under the ACA, there are the 10 essential health benefits, um, and so that's um, one mechanism that has determined that there's a certain set of services that must be covered by each plan. But um, a single-payer system would kind of need to figure out um, how they want to set up this process to determine, probably on uh, a regular basis, uh, what services are covered. So for the services that are covered, uh, there, there will need to be decisions made about what kind of cost sharing is in the plan. So for Medicare, traditional Medicare today, about 80 to 84% of all expenditures are covered by the plan. 
when we go to a comprehensive type of plan, usually the actual value, so the, the amount the, pa- the plan pays on average, is higher. So for Medicare for all um, type of plans, like Bernie Sanders' plan now, most analysts have kind of looked at this as a about a 98% actuarial value plan, meaning that about 2% is paid out of pocket by people on average for um, things that aren't covered by the plan, such as um, elective um, procedures. But this can this can vary. Um, when Vermont was looking at a state option uh, a few years ago, they were first considering an 87% uh, AV plan, and then um, eventually they went up to a 94% plan. So even within this um, umbrella of comprehensive coverage, there's going to be some decision about how much do people have to pay for out-of-pocket. And then on the other extreme, um, for the catastrophic type of coverage, this could look potentially very different for people. Um, so for this example, this is an income-dependent catastrophic plan. So the plan coverage depends on income levels as well as uh, medical expenses. So for people with um, kind of average or low medical expenses that don't hit the catastrophic threshold, the plan wouldn't be paying anything. Once somebody hits some level of catastrophic loss um, from healthcare expenditures, um, then the plan would kick in and start paying for services there. And um, people with lower income would have more covered. People with higher income would have uh, less covered. And so this is um, um, a way to kind of reduce costs in some ways. Usually the catastrophic plans, because they cover less, they will cost less um, for the single payer. So depending on who's covered and what's covered, private insurance might still have a role. Um, in sing- examples of single-payer systems that um, exist now, there's usually still some private insurance that exists in the system. So Medicare uh, today is often called a single-payer plan. There, we have Part D plans, we have supplemental plans to cover services that aren't covered um, by uh, Medicare. Similarly, in Canada, which is um, typically called a single-payer system, the prescription drug plans are privately operated um, because it's not covered by the, the Canadian uh, healthcare system. In UK, there's also private plans, usually to get improved access or to get um, private rooms. And then in Australia, um, everybody's entitled to Medicare, but people at higher income levels um, either need to buy private insurance or they incur a surcharge. So that's one way to um, try to reduce some of the congestion in the public system. And so depending on how the single-payer plan is designed, um, how much is covered, there's a possibility that private insurance will still play a role, even though... Um, we'd go to what uh, we'd call a single-payer plan. So there's also um, the rules for providers and manufacturers that would need to be determined. And so how, uh, what providers participate in the program kind of depends on whether these private insurance plans are um, in existence as well. So a provider may be participating in the single-payer plan. They could participate in private insurance plans, or they could be contracting directly with patients through some sort of concierge care or any sort of combination of that. So some single-payer plans now do prohibit private insurance from providing some of these services, but it it would depend on um, what is in the details of that plan. And um, depending on what providers are um, part of the single-payer plan, that would affect the supply of services that are in the system and how much care is available uh, to people. The other thing that would affect access there is how much the providers are paid. So the single-payer plans often will um, change the way that providers are paid. That could be uh, through fee-for-service. It could be through different value-based payment mechanisms or through global budgets. And that ultimately will affect how much spending is in the system. And similarly for drugs and devices, the price schedules um, will affect um, how people can access 
care and how uh, much it'll cost. So as an example, um, shown here are some results from a RAND study that we did recently for the state of New York. This is for uh, New York uh, state-based single-payer option. And so shown here is total spending over three years. And in the initial year here, we estimated that spending would be pretty similar between the status quo, so current law in New York in blue, and uh, the single-payer in New York in, in green. And the reason for that really is that we... we um, we thought that the provider payment would be very similar in the first year. So providers would be paid a similar, at a similar level than they are, as they are in the status quo. And so that is an assumption, um, because the New York state plan didn't have anything specifically to reduce provider payment. Um, but we thought that the, with uh, state negotiating power and purchasing power, that eventually over time they might be able to reduce down the prices. So over time we assumed that that, uh, spending level would come down. Um, because of slower uh, growth in the provider payment levels. But again, this kind of depends on how the state does that implementation and um, whether they're um, able to uh, push prices down with their purchasing power. And so there's no guarantee that, that that would happen, but it's possible. So in addition to payment methods, um, there are other cost containment strategies that um, would affect costs. Um, global budgets is a, a common way that single-payer plans do this. And then um, the, the payment methods that I've discussed a bit. And then there's also different ways um, to control utilization through different management um, strategies and through cost sharing. So these also would be the key uh, strategies that a single payer plan could use to control costs and how those are implemented and used will ultimately um, affect the impact on, on total spending. So coming back to the New York example, um, we had that um, first uh, the prior slide, which showed about a 1% decrease in total spending. And then we did some sensitivity analysis thinking, okay, so if this played out in a different way, if the prices were actually higher, um, if the, the state wasn't able to negotiate down the rates, and if the cost controls um, weren't, um, weren't as tight, then we estimated that spending could go up by 7%. If it got, went the other way where the uh, state was able to lower uh, the prices for services, and if they were able to implement more cost containment strategies, we estimate that the spending could go down by 12%. So it's a, a pretty wide range on both sides in both directions of what this spending could actually look like, depending on what the state decides to do. And then the last example here, we looked at if um, there was some uh, slightly higher level of cost sharing, uh, we estimated that the spending could come down another percentage point. So these costs all play into how much we actually have to pay for and how much new revenue needs to be generated in order to pay for the plan. And that can be done through different ways. And there's three examples um, here of different uh, types of taxes that have been proposed to uh, to pay for the plan. And um, this often is um, one of the sticking points for a single-payer plan um, because they do require um, new taxes to replace the revenue that is previously collected through private premiums. And so for Medicare for All, Bernie Sanders um, has proposed a variety of different taxes. Um, under the Vermont, Vermont plan, there was a payroll and income tax. And under um, the New York plan, um, there is a payroll and non-payroll tax, as well as um, redirected funds from current Medicaid spending and current uh, Medicare spending in the state. So for New York, um, we um, estimated what would happen to household spending under one specific tax schedule. There's a variety of different tax schedules that could be used to get to the, the revenue um, needed. Uh, but shown here is um, along the x-axis is uh, the 
percentile of household income. On the y-axis is the average healthcare payments as a share of, of uh, income. So, for example, the first um, blue dot there means that for a household that is um, at or below 25, the 25th percentile of income, they're paying about 35% of their compensation on healthcare payments as all healthcare payments. So that's premiums, um, out-of-pocket payments, and tax payments. As you go up on income, you can see that in the blue line under the status quo that uh, people at higher income levels are paying a smaller share of their income on healthcare. The opposite trend is true for the New York um, Health Act, where lower income people pay a lower share of their income, higher people pay a larger share of their income. So comparing these two lines, you can see that below the 90th percentile of uh, household income, people are paying less under the single-payer plan under this particular tax schedule. People above the 90th percentile, on average, would be paying more. So really, this is a tax schedule that redistributes who's paying for health care within the state. And it could be designed in different ways, but ultimately how that tax schedule is designed, how progressive, how regressive it is, will impact what happens to households in terms of what they have to pay. So the slides so far, I'm, I hope, um, have shown some variation in what um, single-payer plans might look like and what they might do. And um, one of the things we wanted to share with you today is that there are a lot of widely held conceptions of single-payer, and they may be true for some plans, but they're not true for all plans. And it's possible to design a system that varies these um, particular um, conceptions, and um, ultimately what decisions are made here would uh, impact um, how much access there is to healthcare services and uh, what those costs ultimately look like. So in summary, the single-payer um, proposals, they could achieve uh, universal coverage. The primary um, thing that would change is that the financing uh, changes. It would be shifting to the government. It would reduce uh, fragmentation in the system by bringing everything under one roof. So there's potentially more control um, and um, for, the, for the government to control costs to change payments. But it would be a big change from the current system. And that can affect um, households in different ways, depending on how um, it's designed, how what is actually in the plan details, and how the different strategies to reduce costs to change reimbursement are actually implemented. So thank you for your attention, and we're happy to uh, take questions about um, some of our work at this time. This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about these issues and to explore RAND's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries.